Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Today, I am going to begin with one of my favorite passages of Scripture, James chapter 1, verse 5. Um, I have been, I don't know about you, but I've been tied up in knots before, and I have actually had to pray for the following, and I have taken great comfort in this promise. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I love that promise, don't you? There have been times in my life where I have felt so stupid. You haven't? Am I the only one? You ever felt stupid? Like, I don't know what to do. I don't, it wasn't even anything. It was my fault. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to untangle this knot. And, and, and God's word always brings me back to this promise that if I will ask for wisdom, God has it and God will give it. And God has done it for me time after time after time. Now, here's the thing. So often, he doesn't usually give it directly to me. He gives it indirectly to me through other people. You ever experienced that? You ask God for wisdom and it doesn't, it's not automatically endowed on you, but you're in relationship with somebody else and that someone else speaks either knowingly or unknowingly into your life and all of a sudden you possess the wisdom of God. Those are the people that today we're going to call the thinkers. Now we're in a series called Who? Who do you think you are? This is week four, and so we've always, already covered a number of different folks, and the premise of this series is quite simple. But John Calvin put it this way. He said, true wisdom consists of two parts. On the one hand, the knowledge of God. On the other hand, the knowledge of yourself. And we admitted at the outset of the series that so many people within the either local bodies of Christ and also the global body of Christ really don't have that self-awareness. I think it's ironic, really, given that there is so much in our culture that is self-centered, that embraces narcissism, that rewards self-indulgence. Even in the middle of all that, we still don't really know ourselves. There's a, there's a, a, a call of our culture to serve yourself, to always be about yourself, but not really about knowing yourself. And so one of the things that we get from this series is an understanding that God's Word, if it's applied correctly in our hearts and lives, it brings a very healthy sense of self-awareness. Now here at Covenant, we use a tool that we will admit to you at the outset is not God's Word. It is not inerrant. It is not infallible. But we found it as a staff and as, as a, a team of leaders and volunteers to be very useful so that we can raise our self-awareness and also the awareness of the people that we're working with. We've submitted that tool uh, for your consideration, the website to access it, uh, and the relative cost, very minimal. I think it's about 10 bucks on the front of your program this morning. And if you've already taken it, you may be one of those people who's going to join me right after this service up in the great room for our first of two identical breakout sessions. We're going to run through this instrument with you and help you understand it a lot better. The reason for that is because we want you to be self-aware. We want you to be self-aware. And, and we think this one does it. We think this, this tool can help you do that. All of the ways that God has wired you or potentially wired you are found within this tool. And on a scale of one to nine, if your dominant scale 
falls at the number five, then that means it is highly likely that as God has wired you primarily as the kind of person that we're going to talk about today, a thinker. And so let's talk a little bit about the thinker. What does that mean? Well, it means above all that God has given you an extraordinary amount of wisdom, right? He has given you wisdom that perhaps others don't have. And here's how you know you're in the presence of a thinker. They're an observer, they're an innovator. Uh, They come up with solutions oftentimes that no one has ever thought of. There's an angle that no one has ever thought of. And they're also an observer. These are people that that if you're in a meeting with them or a family reunion or a church meeting of some sort, uh, they don't tend to talk a whole lot. But when they do, everybody listens because we just intuitively know something of value is about to be said. You ever listen to somebody talk for 45 minutes and go, I don't even know what they said. That didn't make any sense. Hopefully that won't happen right now. But have you ever had that experience? Yeah, that never happens with a thinker because number one, they don't talk a whole lot, but when they do, you know them because they're usually the last people to speak, but nobody with a brain is going to leave that room until they do speak. And it's because they recognize that if you have a thinking type, those people bring three very distinct advantages to the body of Christ. Without them, we're not going to have it. The first advantage is that they bring a detached point of view. Sometimes, I I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes in a church, certainly in a family, things can get emotionally charged. You ever experienced that? Like emotionally dysfunctional, things get out of control, the drama level goes up, all of a sudden people are blaming people. Nobody even knows what the data was that we were arguing about in the first place. And in the midst of a situation like that, you often need a thinker who can detach himself just enough to be able to give a good angle. We have one such example in 1 Kings chapter 3. We read there that two prostitutes came to the king. This is Solomon we're talking about. And they stood before him. The one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house and I have given birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She rolled over on him and accidentally suffocated him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I was, had born. Anybody in here that would love to adjudicate that case? Right? This starts bad. Like, it doesn't get any more emotionally jacked up or drama-filled than when two women are fighting over a custody of a baby. This is bad. All right, and this is what happened. Nope, 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 this is what happened. And as you can imagine, the, the drama goes up, the emotional tension goes up. It, it probably got pretty heated in that room. And I can imagine even some of Solomon's advisors going, what in the world are we gonna do? Because this is, on the on, to say something bad about this particular time period, there were no DNA tests. Like today, it'd be really simple. Let's just draw blood, figure out who this kid belongs to. We didn't have that. On the other hand, there also was not, Facebook and C-SPAN. So at least Solomon has the time to think through this and actually adjudicate it fairly without the court of public opinion jumping five steps ahead of him with data that they don't have and waxing eloquent about what ought to be done. Oftentimes when you're not in the room, the best thing to do is be quiet. But still, you're like, what in the world do you do with a situation like this? Solomon, because he is a thinking type, comes up with an angle 
that few people would have probably thought of. And we find that in the following verses. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two. Cut him in half. Give the top half to the one, give the bottom half to the other, or the left half to the one, or the right half to the other. I don't know how he was planning on dividing this kid up. But the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. While everybody's emotions are jacked up, because two women's emotions are jacked up, and nobody knows how to solve this problem, all of a sudden there's a thinker who comes at this with an angle nobody's thought of and who speaks such wisdom into that situation that all of a sudden all that heightened tension just dissipates and everybody immediately recognizes, oh, that's mama right over there. There she is. Yeah, the one that's saying, please don't cut my kid in half. It's kind of obvious. And so Spirit-filled thinkers have the ability to do that. They can back up from the emotion of a situation just far enough to provide a solution that nobody else seems to be able to see at the time. And so they bring a detached point of view. Secondly, they, they bring an angle that no one has yet thought of. Over in Acts chapter 5, we see an example of this. The high priest has thrown a, the apostles, the founders of your faith and mine, into, into prison. Christianity at that point wasn't called Christianity, by the way. It was called the way. And it was seen by uh, the Jews of that day as a heretical sect of Judaism. And so many of the Jewish leaders, not all of them, but many of them are, are really afraid of it. And that fear increases when an angel miraculously throws open the doors to the prison and frees the apostles. And all of a sudden, now they have to call a council meeting. And they bring the apostles in, and they order them once again, stop preaching this message. Peter then famously says, we must obey God rather than men. I don't think you realize who you're talking to, and I don't think you know yet who we're talking about. We're not going to do that. So these men are perplexed, they're afraid, they're angry, and, and there's a move to just kill the apostles. Let's just eliminate the threat. And in the middle of all that, a Pharisee named Gamaliel speaks, and he says the following, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. And before you jump to conclusions here, think about what you're doing. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So here again, you have emotions that are rising, you have fear that is permeating the room, you have a suggested course of action, and then the one guy who is able to think things that no one else thinks because God has given him the ability to think in ways that no one else thinks recognizes that the people that aren't thinking aren't thinking because they don't have the ability to think the way he has the ability to think, and he speaks into that situation as a thinker and says, I don't think you're thinking what you should think. And they all look, and him, the way you just looked at me. He said, here's an angle you haven't thought about. This one piece of advice diffuses the whole situation. That's the blessing of being in community with a thinker. They have a God-given clarity of perspective. They've got a wider angle that's been given them by their divinely given ability to detach. And let me tell you, we need that. Anybody in here? ever tempted to overreact, maybe just a little, these are the people that can keep you from going to that very dark place within yourself, with your family, and 
with your church. There's a third benefit that these people bring to the body of Christ, and that's a, an appreciation of nuance and complexity. See, some of you, you're like your pastor. You're prophetic. That's the gifting that God has given you, and you need to hang on to that gift, be thankful for it, and exercise it. Because there is, amen, black and white, right and wrong, truth and lies. We believe that. There's absolute truth. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, our ability to discern that may not be quite as clear as we think it is, and that's when the thinkers can help us think. Because sometimes there's nuance. Sometimes there's complexity. Not everything is as cut and dry. We get one example of this when we go back to the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 26. In verse 4, he says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That's sort of like that modern adage that says, Don't get into a fight with a pig. You'll both get muddy, but the pig will enjoy it. You don't want to do that, okay? That's Solomon's wisdom. Don't do this. You're going to be just like him. You don't have to show up to every fight that you're invited to. You don't. And then in verse 5, he, he, he didn't even inhale to take another breath. Answer not a fool. And then he says, answer a fool according to his folly. And so if you're like your pastor, you're like, this doesn't even make it. Is it one or is it the other? Because it can't be both. Well, if it's true that in every individual situation, it can't be both, but it is equally true that there is such nuance and complexity in our world that oftentimes what verse 4 could be apply, applied to in one situation, verse 5 might need to be applied to in another. This is the nuance and the complexity that we get from a thinker. They understand that. Not everything is cut and dry. Some relational situations are more art than science. There was a book that came out in 1996 entitled The Logic of Failure. The subtitle was Recognizing and Avoiding Error in Complex Situations. How many of you would like to be in a situation like that? Now, on that picture and try to fix it. Dietrich Dorner is a psychology professor at the University of Bamberg in Germany, and he traced out multiple scenarios in this book where the average person just taking what seemed like the right steps, what seemed like the common step, sense steps that they were taking at the time, but ultimately, one step at a time, it led not to a solution, but to disaster. One of those was the, was the Chernobyl nuclear incident in Russia that took place roughly a quarter of a century ago. And one of the things that Dorner tries to express is that oftentimes there's more nuance, there's more complexity in a situation than we might like to admit. And even the thing that's on the surface that might look like the common sense thing might not be. And one of the things that thinker types can bring to the body of Christ is an understanding of that. And so in the church, we need that. We need people to remind us that not everything is as simple as it seems. We need people like these thinkers to help us in those situations because these people manifest in our midst when they're walking in the Spirit the same kind of wisdom that God promises to all of us in James 1.5 if we will just ask for it. In other words, 99 times out of 100, when we ask God for wisdom, the way he grants it is through one who is wise, one who is wiser than us, one who is a true thinker. And we've seen that. Right? We've been, this is four weeks now that we're in this series, and we have seen how multiple different kinds of personalities and leadership styles and dominant styles contribute to the body of Christ. We've seen that, that nobody exhibits the servant heart of Jesus like a spirit-filled helper. Nobody demonstrates the intended working order and efficiency of the cosmos like a spirit-filled organizer. No one illustrates the mind-blowing, indescribable beauty and creativity that God created out of nothing like a spirit-filled artist. And 
today, what we're seeing is that nobody exhibits the vastness, the depth, the riches, and the endless supply of the immeasurable wisdom of God like a thinker who is walking in the Spirit. And so if this is your dominant style, we need you in the body of Christ. But like all these other types and like the ones that are coming through the rest of the series, we need you to walk in the Spirit as you exercise that gift. Because you see, there's another side to a, a spirit-filled thinker. That's a flesh-filled thinker. That's a thinker that, that walks in the flesh. And just like the helper can become a fleshly version of a Martha, just like the organizer can, can exhibit the, the narcissistic likeness of a Judas, just like the artist can display all of the entitled petulance of a David, sometimes thinkers can walk in the flesh as well. And so you need to be aware if you're a thinker. Or if you're married to a thinker, you should probably be aware. If you work with a thinker, if you're here at Covenant serving alongside of a thinker, what does it look like when a thinker walks in the flesh? Well, for one thing, they tend to get too detached. Remember I said earlier, oftentimes the thinker has the ability to detach themselves emotionally just enough that they can make a sound decision based upon sound data. But the thing you don't want to do is become too detached. I know pastors like this around the country. They're, they're wonderful, otherwise godly men. They know Scripture better than I do, but they're about as culturally tone-deaf as a rock. So they have no idea how to take that text that they know so much about and apply it to the lives of the listeners on Sunday so that God's people know how to wield the sword of the Spirit rightly. They don't know how to do that. And so they're detached. I teach in, in colleges, universities, at, at a couple of seminaries, alongside faculty, many of whom are wonderful and godly, others of whom wonderful and otherwise godly, but they just can't get off the nail. And they're like this. Everything's detached. Everything's ivory tower for them. And that's the point at which, as it's often said, you become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That's not a place you want to go. Secondly, there's a desire to always operate alone. Some of you may be at work on a team, and you've got a thinker, and you didn't realize it until today that maybe that's the problem because that guy leads the team, which is why you don't have a clue what's going on even though you're on the team. There's no communication. That, that man or woman is doing all of it. They're going to submit whatever it is, whether it's standard or substandard, and it's going to have your name on it even though you didn't really have anything to do with it. Uh, you may have a flesh-filled thinker on your hands, someone who's just always wanting to go it alone. Here's another characteristic of a flesh-filled thinker. They're miserly. Now, what does that mean? Because when you think of a miser, you tend to think of money, right? Scrooge McDuck or somebody like that. They're not necessarily stingy with money, but they're stingy with their emotional connections. Because they're detached, they're also the kind of individual that's going to be very sparing. If you're married to someone like this, Physical, emotional affection may not come often, is, it certainly wouldn't come as often as it needs to come if they're walking in the flesh. And so that results in someone being unfeeling, someone appearing uncaring. And then ultimately, here's the ultimate Achilles heel of a thinker. They can, if they're walking in the flesh, remain stubbornly uncommitted. And by that, I don't mean that they're not loyal or that they can't be relied upon. I mean they can't make a decision. You ever met anybody like that? Maybe you are that person. I can't make a decision. This is particularly acute when it comes to large, major decisions. Some of you may have a boss like this at work. You and the rest of the team wait and wait and wait, and he or she sits at the head of that conference table, and week after week, 
all they do is just keep asking questions, but they don't make a decision, and it makes you insane. You ever been there? Like, why don't they make a decision? And four or five weeks into this, you realize they're not even asking any new questions. It's the same questions. It's the same data. There's no new information. We have a decision to make, and they just won't make a decision. Well, if you've ever experienced that frustration with a thinker, let me help you sympathize with them for a moment, because what's going on in their soul at, at a moment like that, I, whether or not they even realize it, is something of what Solomon experienced in Ecclesiastes 1 when he said the following, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I know what I know. I know more than you. And it brings me vexation. It, it, it has me tied up in knots. I don't know what to do. That's where they are. That's where they are. Intuitively, in all likelihood, they do more. No, more than you or me. But sometimes they also realize in the midst of that, you know, even with all the information I have, I know more. Wouldn't it be frightening to you if you realize, like so many of these thinker types often do, I actually do know more than anybody. I am the smartest guy in the room, and I don't know what to do. That's a frightening place to be at. So have a little sympathy. Have a little compassion for your brother, your sister, who finds themselves in this point of struggle. Don't let them stay there, because we, we need to love each other, not to let each other continually and perpetually walk in the flesh. But you have to understand, and you have to sympathize, that this is where they are. And for those of you who are thinkers who have been there, or maybe you're there now, here's what you need to realize. Sometimes there's not a new angle that no one else has thought of, and sometimes there's no new information. There's just a hard decision to make. And you need to make it the best way that you possibly can. Because in that moment, when somebody can't make a hard decision, you're looking at a thinker that is walking in the flesh. Let me tell you why that is. All of us have a sin that easily besets us, don't we? We've already talked about that through this series. We know that. Um, all of us have it. We know that for the helper, it's pride. We talked about that three weeks ago when we started this series. You know, I, I, I run out of resources. I can't help the way I want to help. And it bothers me because I can't save the world. I can't be everybody's Messiah. I can't solve all the poverty. I can't solve all of the illiteracy. I can't help every person. I'm going to lose some people. That freaks you out sends you to really dark places if you're walking in the flesh because a, a helper, their besetting sin is pride. An organizer's besetting sin is deceit because if you're walking in the flesh as an organizer, as we talked about two weeks ago, you're more concerned about how things look than you are about how things are. And it bothers you to no end. You're image conscious. Last week, we learned that for the artist, your besetting sin is envy. Someone else appears more special, more extraordinary, more creative than me. Well, if you're a thinker and you're sitting here this morning, you have a besetting sin as well. And it may surprise you to learn that it's greed. It's greed. Now, that sometimes is, is a disconnect for us because when we think of a word like greed, we automatically attach it to money. And that's not what I'm talking about. If you're a thinker, you're probably not greedy for more money or more possessions. Here's what you're greedy for. Knowledge. Always greedy for more information. I don't know enough. I need to have more information before I can make a decision. In those moments, you can always tell who the thinkers are because they're the ones in the room, whether it's the conference room or the planning meeting or whatever, they're the one 
that has their hand on the emergency brake. You know what I'm talking about? They're always, and they presume the right to pull that sucker and lock the tracks down and say, no more, not going any further until I have more information. And some of you work with people like that. Some of you serve with people like that. And you just, your reaction is, oh, here we go. Well, if that's you, if you're that person, that propensity to have your hand on the mercy break, there is another character in Scripture that is a lot like you. Anybody in here ever heard of Thomas? What do you know about Thomas? Yeah, he was a doubter. That's what we know. But here's the thing about Thomas. He, he was a hard case, but when you back up and, and you look at the full spectrum of his life, you can see Thomas in exactly um, the kind of transformation that Jesus desires to bring in the heart of every deep-thinking type. But we have to look at some hard things about Thomas, and for us, that's going to begin in the 14th chapter of John. Thomas said to him, that is, to Jesus, Lord, these are the four scariest words on the planet for a thinker. We do not know. Where, in this case, what we don't know is where you're going. Now, that verse has a context that actually makes these words kind of silly. Jesus has just finished in the first four verses describing heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again. And I will bring you back so that where I am, you will be there also. It's meant to give hope. This is his response, okay? Uh, there have been a few times in, in our family's life where we've surprised our children with a trip to Disney World. And if you've been around here long enough, you know I hate that place. But my kids love it. And because I love my kids, we go to Disney. That's just, just like because I love my kids, we have cats, right? Same thing. <laughs> There's things I hate that they love, and okay, so here, here, this is what we're going to do. There's never been a time, every single time, we, we sit our kids down and we go, hey, kids, guess what? Your mother and I, we've been saving money. We've been making all these plans. We got the plane tickets. We got the hotel rooms. We're going to Disney World. I've never had one of my kids go, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have enough information. That's never happened. They're always like, yeah, they want to go. How much more exponentially glorious is heaven than Disney World? This is where I'm going to take you. And Thomas's response is, I don't know enough. I don't know. All right, that's a thinker that's walking in the flesh. When the Son of God is talking about heaven and you try to put the emergency brake on, you might be a thinker who's walking in the flesh. Don't have enough information. And see, here's the thing, if you're a thinker, you will not always have all the information you want, and sometimes the answer to your dilemma is not more information. It is to lean into the person that God is calling you to trust. First and foremost, Jesus, which is why Jesus answers him in this way. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, remember, Lord, we do not know. We need more information. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. You don't need more information. You have me. Some of you who are thinkers might need to hear that today. You don't need more information. A, a fleshly thinker never has enough information. But there is a choice right now in front of you as to whether or not you're going to trust the other person. 
starting with your Lord and Savior, who says this to Thomas. He said, I'm not, yeah, I could give you more information. I'm not going to. You need to know me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here, here at Covenant, if you've been around here for a while, you know we're, we're a church in transition. If you go through our Discover membership class, we're really honest about that. We're, we're a church trying to turn a corner. We're, we're rebuilding some things, and I'm grateful that, to be a part of that ride. I'm grateful to have some incredibly sharp people, both on our staff and on our, our leadership teams of volunteers that are helping me with that. And I think they would testify as well uh, that two and a half, a little more than two and a half years ago, when I started this journey with you, um, we we all probably had something slightly different in mind than where we're at right now. Come this February, I will start my fourth year as your pastor. I'm incredibly honored to do that. And generally speaking, everything that I talked about the very first Sunday I was here in terms of the direction we were headed, we're still headed there. But all of the minutia of what was required to get from A to B, as you can imagine, when you're in a position like mine, you start thinking through all the things that you're going to need and all the decisions that you're going to need to make and where money's going to need to be aimed and where resources and staffing are going to need to be aimed. I had a lot of plans. A lot of our other people had a lot of plans. Would you like to know where probably 90% of those plans are right now? Tomorrow morning, make a, make a visit to the Jefferson County landfill because that's where most of them are. Because anybody who's in leadership recognizes you can't have all of the information from the beginning. You can't know everything. You can't anticipate every hiccup, every person who leaves, other people who come in. There's all kinds of things that you just don't know. And so all you can do, and this is the biggest challenge for a thinker, all you can do, make the best plans you know how to make, be as flexible as a Gumby doll and trust the Lord. That's all you can do. And that is incredibly hard for a thinker because they want everything mapped out so that they can check every box symmetrically, in order, in the right sequence, in the right rhythm. And if any of that gets messed up, the tendency is to become like Thomas. Lord, whoa, 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 whoa. Boy, there's a lot of great things around here, but there's things I don't know yet. Well, there's things all of us don't know. And unless you're Jesus, you will always be in that box. So what do you do with that? That's the question. That's what Thomas is having trouble with. We don't know. And so a spirit-filled thinker is thankful for the gifts God has given him or her to serve in the church, thankful for the knowledge, thankful for the wisdom, thankful for the angles, thankful for the, the nuance and complexity of which they are aware. But they also understand that the church doesn't stand or fall on your bank of knowledge. It stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus. And that should bring you great freedom today. Thomas struggles with this, and it finally comes to a head after the resurrection of all things. John chapter 20 records those words for us. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, now you want to talk about a thinker type that's just dug in his heels and stubborn. Read that tone into these words, and you'll be right and interpret them rightly. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The, 
the most frightening words to a thinker are we do not know. And if you give in to that fear, your stubborn uh, disposition will forever be exactly those four words. I will never believe. And the Lord doesn't want that for you. He didn't want it for Thomas, which is why what we see happening after the resurrection is a sign of, of the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Nobody else, by the way, just adding this on, nobody else makes these demands of Jesus. The disciples see him risen and they're like, they're happy. They were afraid, they were running in fear, but they didn't make these kinds of demands. There's a preoccupation that Thomas has here. Notice that? To the wounds, particularly. I gotta put my finger here, I gotta put my, my hand here. He's preoccupied with the trauma of what he's seen. Basically what he's saying to the disciples is, I saw what happened and nobody comes back from that. You're not going to be able to convince me otherwise unless he appears and allows me to do these things. So this isn't someone who's necessarily lacking courage or even loyalty, but they are, at, they, they are lacking loads of faith due to what they perceive as an unacceptable level of knowledge. I got to know first. And eight days later, he gets his wish. In John 20, 27, we read the following. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, right there, and see my hands, and, and put out your hand and, and place it in my side. I, I saw where they, where they shoved that sword. I know what vital organs were hit. Nobody comes back to that, and now his Lord stands before him and goes, if this is what it's going to take, son, have at it. Put your hands inside here. Put your finger inside here. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, in that moment, has combined Thomas' lust, frankly, for knowledge with himself, and he's given him something better. Almost as if he's responding by saying, you know what, at least you're asking for me. At least you're asking for me. So I will allow you to put your hand in my side. I will allow you to put the finger, your finger into the wounds in my wrists. And Thomas finally arrives. See, this is the hope for the thinker that you too can arrive at this point in John 20, 28. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. This is the doubter that finally made a decision. Finally decided to make a stand. And he overcame the biggest obstacle in that moment that any thinker ever comes away from. And that is to lay aside your greed for more information. Stop trying, out, trying to figure out how to live life as nothing more than a defense against living. And actually desire to take concrete, generous action. And here's the thing, you, you may still suffer loss. In fact, you probably will. You probably will. I was at a meeting of, of organizational leaders many, many years ago, getting some training and it was when I learned that some research that was done from Peter Drucker had revealed the following data. Two different kinds of chief executive officers, major corporations. There's the kind that take large risks and the kind that don't. And this is what they discovered. You ready for this? This will move you. Chief executive officers who take huge risks tend to make one to two major mistakes every single year. Major mistake being defined as a mistake that costs the company more than $100,000. That's pretty major for most of us, right? 
Then they surveyed chief executive officers who do not, by their nature, take huge risks. And you know what they discovered? Those, those executives make one to two major mistakes a year. You may as well live. You may as well take a chance. You may as well check your fear at the door. You may as well give up the opportunity for knowing everything because you're not God and grab on to the one who does know everything. I'm not telling you to be foolish because there's, there's other people in the crowd right now and you're not thinkers and you're going, yeah, yeah, I knew it was okay for me to buy those 28 lottery tickets. No, that's not what I mean, okay? I'm talking to the people who probably need to talk to you right now and give you a little dose of wisdom. But for those who are thinkers, take the chance because you will have lived the fullest of this life, even with those losses, when you don't just know things intellectually but experientially. You have a knowledge of the world that God, God has created that can cause you to experience better than any other person on the spectrum that we're describing, the fullness of his wisdom. And then you get to dispense that wisdom to others. You get to dispense that wisdom to others. See, for Thomas, the story doesn't end in the scriptures. It continues. The apostles, ended; their lives ended in various ways in different parts of the world. Peter and Bartholomew made it roughly into the Middle East. Philip makes it down into East Africa. Paul makes it to Spain in all likelihood to the tip of Europe. But nobody of any of the 12 makes it any further, at least geographically, than this doubting man named Thomas. He makes it all the way to the Indian Ocean. Several years ago, the organization that I work for had established a pastor school in Chennai, India, on the southeast uh, part there of the, the city, uh, of the, the continent there, facing the Indian Ocean. Over on the right, you can see a picture there of 60-plus Indian pastors that we were in the process of training. And that school, by the way, continues to this day. Uh, it's just not primarily led anymore by people who look like me. We turned it over to the indigenous peoples there, and they're administering and teaching and reproducing that teaching and reproducing pastors and church planners. God's doing a wonderful thing in Southeast India. It was an honor and a privilege to be a part of it. But there's a reason those 60 guys were in the room for me to train. It's because 2,000 years prior to that moment, Thomas stood right about where you see me standing in that picture to the left. Now, it was, it was a cloudy day that day, but immediately behind me is the city of Chennai, about 8 million people, and then immediately behind the city of Chennai is the Indian Ocean. And where you see me standing is the approximate spot where Thomas breathed his last breath after being speared to death by a Hindu fundamentalist. He'd made it all the way that far. He had proclaimed the gospel. He had made disciples. And those individuals of that other faith said, we're going to kill you if you keep doing this. So here's what you need to know. The man who doubted, the man who said, we do not know, the man who said, I will never believe, that man finally made up his mind. That is precisely the kind of transformation that God wants to do in your life. He wants to take you to a mountain like that. He wants to leave in honor of the things you've done in his name, a legacy like those 60 pastors. I won't ever forget it during one of the breakout sessions being in the presence of a pastor there. His name was Ambrose. When he converted years earlier from Hinduism to the Christian faith, he, he was renamed after the 4th century Bishop of Milan. And Ambrose spoke with tears about another group of Hindus, interestingly enough, 
about 300 miles away from where we were. That's where he came from to be at that conference to be trained. And they had threatened to kill him. He narrowly escaped on his way to Chennai. But there was no question in his mind where he was going back once we were done. And he cried profusely, wept bitter tears over the people who were threatening to kill him while the rest of us prayed for those very same people. And we bid him goodbye just a few days later. That was in 2011. I'd, I've not seen him since. I don't know what happened to him. Did he go back and there was revival and there's churches all over the place? Did he go back and face the same fate as Thomas? I don't know, but I do know this. That man would not have even been standing there that day had 2,000 years earlier a thinker not decided, you know what? I'm going to embody the wisdom of God. I'm going to step out. I'm going to plant my flag. I'm going to make my decision which results in the very wisdom of God being deposited right there in that region of India. And it flourished and continues to flourish 2,000 years later in followers of Jesus, including many pastors, that can be traced back to this doubting disciple. Let me tell you why that is. It's because Thomas, as a thinker, finally, he doesn't throw wisdom to the wind, but he understands how it's supposed to be embodied. It's supposed to look exactly like this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This isn't about going anti-intellectual. It is about taking your thoughts and enslaving them to the Lord so that everything you do is done in obedience to the Lord Jesus. I'm no longer greedy for information. I no longer have to feel like I have insufficient data. I know enough to know that he is the way and the truth and the life, and I will follow him, even if it means getting speared to death on top of a mountain. But until that happens, I will deposit my God-given wisdom among his people until he calls me home. That is a gift that didn't stop with Thomas. Some of you, this is your style. This is who God wired you to be, and this is who God wants you to be. He wants you to keep thinking, but he wants you to translate that thought into obedience and lean into Jesus and take every thought captive. And if you can do that, you will finally start to live. And you will live out even the things that your mind at this moment tell you are impossible. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that your wisdom that you describe in Romans as so vast, so indescribable. No math can measure it. No words can describe it adequately. And yet, you deposit it with us. You give it freely to anyone who asks for it. And we thank you that you have endowed men and women in this very body with that particular gift that they're already walking around endowed with that wisdom and that they can dispense it into the body of Christ and that we can be a better church, that we can bring more transformation because of the gift that they bring. Father, we pray that they would truly embody that by repenting of the sin of greed, that they would no longer feel like they don't know enough and that in their quest for more information, they would not stop obeying you. And Father, may that encourage the rest of us to be obedient to you as well. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. 
I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.